Owen Sanders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Wherever you may be, this is Inside Track co-host. Inside Track host. I don't want to demote myself. Uh, Bruce Ash and co-host. Eb Wilkinson. Coming to you live from the modern KVOI broadcast complex here in Tucson, Arizona. Welcoming you to a... President's Day weekend edition of Inside Track. And thanks for tuning in this afternoon. We have both a very interesting and entertaining show for you today. Bruce and I are going to travel back in time in the Wayback Machine with retired U.S. Army Reserve Officer, sometimes known as Eastside Don, and frequent contributor to the Damn the Torpedoes, Donald Smith, who has just published a book he's been working on for some time titled Steinstucken, A Little Pocket of Freedom. Did I get that right, Bruce? Steinstücken. Steinstücken. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I didn't get the sht. <laughs> His book is very timely right now after Biden's horrific retreat from Afghanistan and the challenges being faced by the Ukrainians as Russia breathes down their necks, ready to attack. Many of our allies, and worse yet, all of our enemies doubt America's will to stand for freedom. Donald will take us back to a time when our country fought hard to preserve freedom for a few hundred people trapped inside the Soviet-occupied Germany during the Cold War. And after Bruce gives us the weekly rundown, Donald will chat with us for the rest of the show. We hope you'll stay with us to hear Donald's great story. Before we get rolling, let me remind you that Inside Track is brought to you by great sponsors, Eric Rudin at Essential Pest, who shares your dislikes of bugs, vermin, and weeds, Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus, their junk is your treasure, Joy and Allie at Corazon Cabinets, cabinets for your home, you will love. And Bruce, I'm still waiting to see your cabinets. I want to see them today. Okay, we'll do that on the way home. Eb's been my chauffeur these last few weeks. Uh, and and just a, a program note, I'm hoping that this is the last time when Eb has to pick me up and take me uh, down to the studio. I'm hopefully getting back my driving privileges on, on uh, Wednesday. Also helping support Inside Track, besides being my chauffeur, is my friend and Inside Track co-host, Eb Wilkinson from Wilkinson Wealth Management. Let Eb help you never have to depend upon socialist security. All of our sponsors are locally owned, family-run businesses. You can depend upon Eb and I do. So should you. Before we get to our first break and greet author Donald Smith, let's go to the weekend rundown. Jay Chen, a CCP-loving Democrat, who else, running for Congress from California, who fought to bring the Chinese Communist Party teaching materials to public schools in his district when he was a school board member, is running against Michelle Steele. Chen is now train is now running to unseat freshman uh, Steele, a Korean American, who Chen accused of engaging in anti-Asian racism that perpetuates the rise in violent anti-Asian hate crimes in a recent campaign email. Yeah, right. I know Michelle, and I can guarantee you that never happened. Much to the disgust of the left and even Republican swamp creatures, Mike Pence defends RNC's January 6th resolution and avoids criticism of Donald Trump in Stanford speech this past week. On the other hand, Senate leader Mitch McConnell criticized the RNC resolution, which censored Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel is under increasing pressure by conservatives uh, at the RNC, and within the RNC, she faces a likely strong challenger from Maryland, uh, and that would be um, David Bossie, 
who is also the president of Citizens United, he authored that resolution, uh, and uh, that election will be in January of 2023. Did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. From CBS News, shelling has intensified in eastern Ukraine and concerns about Russia creating a false flag pretext for an invasion. This week, Russian officials reported withdrawal of troops from the border. However, military surveillance has revealed troop strengthening uh, Troop strength has increased to 190,000 troops. Russian-backed leader in eastern Ukraine, uh, that's a, a breakout uh, region of eastern Ukraine, announced evacuation of civilians from that region, raising fears of imminent military action. Uh, I think my friend Donald Smith would agree this is classic Russian misinformation. Uh, by the way, the Brandon administration officials, uh, such as Anthony Blinken and Lloyd Austin, are running around Europe in a dither, having absolutely no influence on the situation, and in fact seem to be willing to allow Russia to dictate terms what former Soviet bloc countries will and will not be members of NATO in the future. High-ranking Homeland official... Uh, Homeland Security officials in the Trump administration say they were overcome with feelings of vertigo, confusion, and memory loss while on the White House grounds and in their D.C. area homes. The incidents and symptoms they described are similar to the Havana syndrome that has been reported by American diplomats in foreign countries since 2016. The officials spoke to 60 Minutes for a new report airing this Sunday. Other stories of officials being stricken were corroborated by former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who fears there is a threat to the highest levels of the U.S. government. Bolton is concerned the Havana Syndrome symptoms could be used one day as another weapon by enemies to disable the American political or military leadership team in a future time of emergency. Havana syndrome has been played down by the CIA repeatedly as hypochondria and coincidence. Did it, did, 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 hipster alert. A cargo ship carrying 1,000 Porsches and other luxury cars is burning adrift in the Atlantic Ocean. A mammoth cargo ship believed to be carrying thousands of vehicles, including 1,000 including 1,100 Porsches, was on fire drifting off the coast of the Azores on Thursday after its 22 crew members were rescued from the, uh, from the vessel. DOJ, FBI will investigate companies for illicit profits. It seems Elizabeth Warren's bizarre theories about corporate greed driving inflation have made their way into federal law enforcement. The Department of Justice announced Thursday it will begin investigating companies for earning what it believes to be excessive profits amid surging inflation and ongoing supply chain issues. In a press release, the department said its antitrust division would begin to deter, detect, and prosecute those who would exploit supply chain disruptions to earn what the department calls illicit profit. The goal of the initiative, according to the department, is to prevent companies from overcharging customers while under the guise of supply chain disruptions. It's also a cover for the Biden administration, who is largely responsible for supply chain disruptions. An earthquake shook 
San Francisco earlier this week as three radical members of the San Francisco School Board were recalled by huge margins, again showing the anger of concerned American moms and dads against leftist teacher union brainwashing going on in schools today. Recalled San Francisco School Board president claims white supremacists are blamed for her loss. Sorry, Allison, the real racists are you and the other board members who overwhelmingly got the boot from pissed-off, concerned parents. Own up to your own shortcomings and poor decisions which have hurt your community. By the way, the mayor of San Francisco will name the replacements for these ousted members and we're likely to see another bad decision. A Jewish Democrat candidate for mayor in Louisville, Kentucky, Craig Greenberg, was attacked in his campaign headquarters and nearly killed by an African-American BLM member, Quentin Quintez Brown, earlier this week. BLM member Brown accused of trying to murder mayoral candidate Craig Greenberg, but he was released on bail from the county jail Wednesday night in less than 24 hours after the attempted murder. Black Lives Matter organizer Chanel Helm confirmed for the Courier-Journal that Brown's bail was posted by Louisville Community Bail Bail Fund, a local group that raises money to free dependents. Defendants. Defendants in criminal cases. Who in America is saved from violent crime today from BLM racists? Lastly, the reports in the AP uh, that the Democrat brand is so toxic that Dems fear extinction, extinction in rural U.S. areas. The party's brand is so toxic, they say, in small towns 100 miles northeast of Pittsburgh that some liberals have removed bumper stickers and yard signs and refuse to acknowledge publicly their party affiliation. These Democrats are used to being outnumbered by local Republicans. But as their numbers continue to dwindle, those who remain are feeling increasingly isolated and unwelcome in their own communities. We Republicans feel the same way here in blue-impacted Tucson and Pima County. Interesting to note that Democrats feel the same way when they're outnumbered. That's the rundown for this week. Mr. Producer, let's take our first break and hear messages from our great sponsors. When we return, local author and well-known conservative Donald Smith joins us to tell the story of Steinstücken, a little pocket of freedom. You're listening to Inside Track. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our biggest customers are actually like ranchers and people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is A, we sell scrap to the mill. So... Uh, we have a relationship there and then we can buy material what they're making bringing it back and so we save on freight and we have relationships for years with them so i think that's really our niche market we'll sell whatever you need tucson iron and metal surplus call 209-1579 stop by the yard 701 east 36th street open monday through saturday Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? (sighs) No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? 
none of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh, essential pest control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, of Wilkinson Wealth Management at 777-1911-WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. Eb is here. Bruce is here. As we mentioned before, today's edition of Inside Track is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be continuing our show, introducing our great Republican candidates again real soon. But today, Bruce and I want to talk about life in a tiny village in communist-occupied Germany after World War II and why the message of this book, Steinstücken, A Little Pocket of Freedom, is so darn important decades later. Our guest for the balance of the show today is a Tucson local via Virginia retired U.S. Army Reserve officer, first-time author Donald Smith, a.k.a. Eastside Don, here at KVOI. Don teaches geographic information systems and software skills. He's a bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia and a master's degree from the Joint Military Intelligence College, now the National Intelligence University. From 1986 to 1989, Donald served in Germany. During that time, he visited Berlin three times. On one of those visits, Donald went to Steinstücken and never forgot it. Steinstücken. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> he thought about writing a book for some time now. And now the story of... Bruce. I'm getting it. <laughs> a Little Pocket of Freedom has been published by Acclaim, by Acclaim Press and is also available online through Amazon. So uh, Steinstücken, a small settlement with approximately 200 inhabitants, is the southernmost territory of Berlin and from the division of Germany in 1949 until Connecting Corridor was created in 1971-72, Steinstücken was the only permanently inhabited of the 12 original enclaves in West Berlin and East... Exclaves. I never heard exclaves. that term before. Yeah, I know. Neither had I. Neither had I. <clears throat> and we'll get back to that in a minute. Exclaves of West Berlin in East Germany. While West Berlin itself was an enclave controlled by Western allies surrounded by either East Berlin or East Germany. In 1951, GDR attempted to annex Steinstücken by sending police and military forces into the exclave. After objection by the U.S., they withdrew their forces a few days later. From then, their only access to the outside world was through two East German checkpoints and a road about one kilometer in length into West Berlin proper. For all their everyday activities, like school, work, shopping, they had to pass these controls from then on. Thanks for joining us, Donald. And as your bio says, you are a published writer of articles, and you majored in history at UVA. Did you ever imagine one day writing a history book? Yeah, I did. But um, and that had, I don't want to say it was on my bucket list because hopefully I'm long, far away from actually having to write up a bucket list. But something I'd always wanted to do, and I just reached a point in my life around 2014 where I had the opportunity to do that. And so I looked around for a subject that hadn't been covered yet, and 
I remembered my visit to Steinstuggen back from the time when I was in the army in Germany. And I looked around and I realized that there was not a history of the village in English. There was one in German, but not in English. So I reached out to the village residents and uh, I said, hi, y'all don't know me, but uh, <laughs> uh, I would like to write a book about you. And they said, we think that's a good idea because many of us who remember the Cold War period are passing away and we'd like our stories to be recorded. And uh, we'd like them to be recorded in both German and English. And so uh, that, that created a perfect opportunity. So I started researching their stories. I started interviewing them. I started reaching out to Americans who had served in the Cold War in, in, in Berlin and had been part of the Steinstucken experience. And from that, uh, the book came together. How hard was it to write it? Well, it took a long time because I had to research uh, the subject. Uh, fortunately, I a lot of information about America's efforts during the Cold War have now been declassified. So I had to make one trip to the National Archives. But there's also some wonderful uh, references online that are free of charge uh, because they're U.S. government records. They're part of the public domain. And one of the... One of the things that worked in my favor is that for a law, when the American occupation of Germany began, and then as it went on in from the late 1940s into the early 1950s, there was a lot of pressure in the United States to end the occupation and bring the troops home and stop spending so much money in Germany. So the occupation authorities made sure that they wrote up all sorts of stories and justifications and papers about the important things that they were doing and why it was important to have an American presence in, in, in Germany after World War II. And that information is now available on the, on the public record. University of Wisconsin has a digital, excellent digital library. And one of its, uh, one of its sections is called Germany Under Reconstruction, and all the critical documents that the U.S. government put out are there, and I just researched them online. Uh, also, the State Department has an organization called the Association of Diplomatic Studies and Training, and it's, it's not really an official State Department organization, but it works with the State Department. And one of the things they do is they interview former State Department personnel and, and record their experiences. And then they put together these country readers, and so there's a Germany country reader that has over a thousand pages in it, and it's a free download. And I was able to go and read the reminiscences of not only State Department people who worked with the Steinstück and Exclave, but also who worked in Germany all throughout the Cold War. And literally, in many cases, writing this book was simply gathering those stories and organizing them. At times, I didn't feel like I was really writing. I thought that was simply just arranging information out there because the stories themselves are so wonderful and uh, many of them had already been recorded. It was just uh, a, a lot of what I've done with this book is take information that's been recorded in the past but forgotten and brought it back into light. And, and so that's one of the things that I really like about the opportunity to write this book is that um, these are stories that I was concerned they would be forgotten. So why do you think it's so important to get this out there? I mean, let me let me sure. rephrase it. <clears throat> this is going to sound terrible. So what if those stories are forgotten? So what? In other words, mm -hmm. why is it so important to have these out there? Well, um, I think it's important. I, I think it's important to. Well, that's a good question. I really thought of it that way. Um, 
I think it's important to 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 look back on our successes in the past because you'll find and this comes from just studying history in general, you'll find that many of the problems you run into nowadays are problems that people have run into in the past. And so it's it's instructive to see how people dealt with these problems in the past because you can see the mistakes they made and hopefully avoid them. You can find see the successes that they achieved and hopefully repeat them, replicate them. Uh, and so... Uh, so that's one of the main reasons. And another reason that, that I thought this book was important is that, uh, uh, I, again, I spent three years in Germany and my time there, I was very proud of that because of the fact that I was representing the United States and supporting uh, a good ally in Germany and uh, the, the German people are very good people. And uh, I want people to remember that we actually did build a very strong relationship and had that all throughout the Cold War between the Americans and the Germans. And that's one of the things that you'll see in this book. That's when I, I, I thought of taglines for advertising the book. And one of the ones that comes to mind right away is that this is a German-American success story. These were Germans and Americans facing a very difficult situation, uh, Germans and Americans together, uh, and they successfully handled it. The Americans managed to keep this village safe for over 20 years. The Germans managed that lived in the village managed to keep themselves safe. They managed to support the West, and they also managed to live relatively normal lives in a unique situation. And and so I I wanted to capture that story so that other people could read it and you know be inspired by it. I think uh, we should be proud of the Americans and the Germans that were part of the Steinstucken experience, and also of the. Uh, uh, American first occupation and then later protection of Berlin for several decades during the Cold War, and hopefully this book helps do that. So to that end, you've got a slightly different view on how you want to get this book out there. You know, you want to get it out in hard copy. Mm -hmm. I'm holding one right now. You've got 28 pages of endnotes. Mm -hmm. 28 pages. Right. Okay. So why hard copy, and what do you want to have done with this book? Well, um... <clears throat> a lot of the people that uh, a lot of the people that I, I I wanted this I wanted to produce a book that the people who were in Steinstucken during the time could have and put on their shelf and, and share with their family members and, and most of those folks are in the 70, 70s and 80s right now and they're not really online they're not using iPhones so uh, they they prefer hard copy book. Uh, also, I wanted a book that would go into libraries well, because I think this is a story that would fit well in the library. You could check it out. You can read the story. It's only about 300 pages long, and then you can return to the library, and hard copy books work better uh, for, for a library. So, And also, the publisher that, uh, that, that agreed to take the book on, they prefer working in hard copy, at least initially. So uh, that's why we went the hard copy route. I mean, something that eventually could come out in a soft copy form, but uh, for a variety of reasons, we decided to go the hard copy route first. And because, and the, you talked about the number of uh, footnotes in the end, uh, I wanted to wanted to make sure that I listed all my sources because I was hopeful that that this book at some point could be uh, accepted as like a supplementary reading in a college history course on the Cold War, not a primary text, but a supplementary reading. And in that case, you have to list all your sources. And also, I wanted everybody to see where my sources were so they could go back and check them out themselves. So so basically, don't trust you. Check it out themselves? Well, I hope they'll trust me, but well, I want to give them an opportunity to trust but verify. Okay. So, uh, Acclaim Press. Mm-hmm. 
they managed to take a chance on a brand new author who hasn't written anything. Right. How did they that did. go? Well, I reached out to them, and it turns out they have they uh, Acclaim Press works a lot with first time authors from military background, and they they liked the story. The, they they also thought of it as an inspiring Cold War success story, and uh, and so and they also saw some commercial potential in it, and we are selling the book well on Amazon. And so it, uh, it's I've gotten a, we've gotten a fair number of orders, so we've had some commercial success with it, and uh, and so they 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 thought it was something that, that there was a market for, so that and and to be honest that that was satisfying to me. I wanted to write a book that would be appealing to a general audience, and one way to do that is to go to a commercial press that only prints books that sell, and they accepted the book. So that was a. I consider that to be a bit of an accomplishment. So, how long have you been on the media tour? This is it. I've done a oh, few. Oh, no, that's not true. No, I've done a few radio interviews, but uh, about a month or so, because the book just just came out. Uh, it it physically arrived middle of January. So, I've done a, a few uh, podcasts. Uh, I did a podcast for the Cold War Conversations podcast, and I also did an interview for Wake Up Tucson. And I did a Liberty Watch, hmm? Liberty Watch with Charles. Uh, That's Keller. right, the Liberty Watch. And I also did a webinar for the Southeast Pennsylvania Cold War Historical Society and for the Cold War Museum, which is outside of uh, DC. How's the reaction so far? Very good. Everyone seems to be pretty happy with it, uh, and it's. I'm gratified to hear that, but I'm also gratified to tell the story because the story is just a fascinating one. It's fun to tell. Uh, th this this story. Talk about VDH. Oh, Victor David Hansen. I, yeah, Victor David Hansen has uh, has given me a blurb for the cover of the book, and I, I just took a shot. I I found his his contact information, reached out to his uh, assistant, made my pitch. She said, "Well, send us a copy of the book. We'll see what we can do." Because Professor Hansen is a really busy person. <laughs> And then I was, so I was getting to the point that I'm thinking, well, he probably won't have time to do it. And then all of a sudden the blurb showed up in the email. Apparently he had a few hours, so he sat down, read the draft, and uh, I... Let me read it. Let okay. me read what Victor Davis Hansen had to say. Donald Smith's micro-history of the tiny post-war Berlin suburb of Steinstücken offers a macro-historical view of larger Cold War complexities and dangers, especially the drama of whether an overextended America could stand up to nonstop Soviet pressure, the maze of occupation rivalries amongst British, French, and American forces, and the plucky spirit of the Steinstücken residents to trust in the protection of the far-off Americans rather than give in to the overwhelming power of nearby communism. An engaging study of what few brave people can do to preserve their freedom against overwhelming odds. That's high praise from somebody we all admire. I I was so thrilled to get that, and that's and that's another that's, that's another reason I wrote the book is to have the opportunity to get you know, feedback like that. So yeah, I'm I'm probably going to print that up and frame that somewhere in the house. <laughs> yeah. So you've written. With Steinstück, and America did the right thing instead of the easy thing. The U.S. could have easily justified letting East Germans take over the neighborhood, but it didn't. 
and the U.S. has promised to protect West Berlin, and Steinstücken was part of West Berlin. For over 20 years, the Army and the State Department safeguarded that village mm-hmm. and kept it free. And the Army even set up an MP post in the village mm-hmm. sustained by helicopter airlift. Mm-hmm. So America kept its word. So why is it so important that America did the right thing as opposed to the easy thing? Well, because we're always being evaluated by people that we are asking to trust us. And in and this is an example of... The situation where that where that happened, where America's uh, America was asking the West Berliners to trust them, because uh, st- the Steinstücken episode really became big in Cold War or became important and co- noteworthy in Cold War history in October of 1951, when the East Germans surrounded the village. Let me, actually, let me just step back a little bit and can I explain for the readers exactly? Yep, absolutely. Okay. All right. Steinstücken is a neighborhood that, that during the Cold War had about at most 200 people in it. And it was officially part of a borough in the city of Berlin. And what was unique, though, is that it was not physically connected to the city of Berlin. There was no West Berlin-owned strip of land or road that connected uh Connected Steinstücken to the rest of of of, uh, of the city of Berlin. We t- we were joking about the term enclave versus exclave. Well, both enclaves and exclaves are isolated areas. They're surrounded by the territory of another country or another government. But an enclave has some connection back to its its home. You know, the, a road or a strip of land. Exclaves, on the other hand, are completely surrounded by the territory of another country or another government. So, going back, uh, it's probably better to go all the way back and talk about exactly how the situation first happened. And the situation first happened hundreds of years before the modern-day city of Berlin was was created. Um, there There was a farming village named Stolpe, which was a, a village that's right now on the, it's on the edge of the Wannsee Lake, which is one of the major lakes in Berlin. And it was not uncommon for, matter of fact, it's still not uncommon for Western European farmers, especially German farmers, to have farms that have plots of land that are separated by kilometers or miles. Uh, and that's just a, a, a feature of, of German agriculture. And so some of the farmers in this village started buying plots of land in an area about three miles south of them, and the and the fields were uh, rocky, so that that's why they acquired acquired the name Steinstücken, uh, German rock or stone pieces. Yeah, stone pieces. pieces. Okay, that's right. is, is that's that's what uh, Steinstücken is, uh, uh, stone pieces in German. And then as the decades went on and the centuries went on, the, the farmers acquired more land there. Some people built some houses there. Eventually, a little community grew up. But that area, Steinstücken, was always treated legally as part of the main village for, for tax purposes and things like that. So when the city of Berlin was created by the Prussian government in 1920, uh, the main village fell within the borders of what was accepted to be Berlin. But this little Steinstücken area fell about a kilometer outside of it. And prior to the Cold War, nobody really cared about that too much because it was like viewed as, as a, a distinction between city land or county land. 
That's important at tax time or when there's elections. But for the most part, when people are living their day-to-day lives, they go back and forth between cities and counties all the time. So it didn't really matter so much that this little village over here belonged to the city of Berlin as opposed to the German state of Brandenburg, which is the state that's outside of Berlin. However, when the Cold War began, that became very important because when the Allies decided to divide up how to divide up Berlin for occupation, what they did was they, they, had a, they had a commission called the European Advisory Commission that was meeting in London. It was American, British, and Soviet officials, and they were trying to figure out how they were going to occupy Germany once it was defeated. And they quickly came to the determination that Berlin would be occupied by all of the, the, the uh, Allied powers. Berlin, they knew, was going to fall within the Soviet zone of occupation, but they decided there was going to be four power occupation of Berlin. In other words, there would be a a Soviet sector, an American sector, British sector, and then later they added a French sector. So then the question came up, well, how do you divide the city up? Well, what you could do is you could have put put a piece of acetate or tissue paper down on a map and drawn lines based on where the roads were and divided the city up that way. And that's a common way to divide up areas. But then somebody said, you know, we're going to have to run the city when we get there. And the city's probably going to be devastated. We're going to be occupying it for a long time. Berlin is broken up into boroughs, like New York City's broken up into boroughs. Uh, (coughs) Manhattan, Bronx, Staten Island, those are all boroughs, and they have their own governments. And they have their own government officials. And so the Allies came up with the idea Instead of just drawing lines and dividing up Berlin, let's break down the boroughs and assign certain boroughs to each occupying power. Because that way you can then take advantage of those borough governments and the Americans, if they wanted something done in their sector, they could simply tell the local borough government to do it instead of having to do it themselves. Made sense. So what they did was they they looked at the number of boroughs in Berlin and they allocated them out. Well, the Americans ended up getting the borough that Steinstucken belonged to. And that's how it happened. That's how it happened. So, hey, hey well, well, we need to take a break. Mm-hmm. So, Mr. Producer, let's take our traditional overdue bottom of the hour break. When we return, we'll continue our journey together in the Wayback Machine with former U.S. Army officer and local author Donald Smith and hear more about his new book, Steinstucken, A Little Pocket of Freedom. You're listening Inside Track. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? 
none of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh, essential pest control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Eb Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911-WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. We continue our chat with the author of Steinstücken, A Little Pocket of Freedom. Donald, there are some great gems in your book. You wrote about some things that Berliners did to help the U.S. during the Cold War. Berliners supported Americans openly and frequently and often at real personal risk. Tell us about the time in 1946 when Berlin held their city election, when thousands of Berliners voted for Western political parties. Okay, I would argue that this was pro the 1946 Berlin city elections was probably the first big victory for the Americans in what later became the Cold War. And what happened was when, when Germany was defeated, the Western allies or, or the allied powers, the Soviets, the United States and the Brits and British and later the French had decided that they were going to run Berlin jointly. Now, all of Germany was carved up into occupation zones. Like, for example, uh, the, the, the southern part of Germany, Munich, Garmisch, that area, that became the American occupation zone. And Berlin itself, the city of Berlin, fell inside the Soviet occupation zone, which is basically the eastern side of, of modern-day Germany. And But the Western Allies, specifically the British, did not want the Soviets to have complete control of Berlin themselves because they realized how important Berlin was going to be in the future of a post-war Germany, and they wanted the all of the Allies to have some control of that. So the Soviets agreed to that, and so they decided to come up with a four-power government. And so in 1946, the city of berlin was going to have municipal elections the first ones that had that were that had been held since uh before the, time, or yeah, so. before the time of adolf hitler and berliners were in a unique situation in the fact that they had had a chance to live up close with american british french and soviet occupation personnel so it, it in October of 1946, when these elections took place, it was becoming obvious that tensions were rising between the Soviet Union and the West. And the rest of the world realized that this is a unique situation where you had a group of people who had had a chance to live with both the Soviet view of what the future world should be and the Western view of what the future world should be. And their votes would be viewed as basically a de facto referendum on which way forward was the best. So the Soviets badly wanted to do well in the election. They did all sorts of electioneering to try to get people throughout the city uh, to vote for them. And they also used underhanded tricks, too. It wasn't uncommon for people to disappear off the streets in West Berlin, and they'd been, been ta they'd presumably taken away by the NKVD, which is the predecessors of the KGB. Um, one of the State Department officials who, who worked there during that time period said it was a dirty Cold War at the time. <laughs> and yet the... 
it would have been very easy for the people in the Western sectors just to stay home and not vote. Uh, or, but instead, what a lot of them did is they stood up and they openly supported the German political parties, no, notably the Social Democrats, known as the SPD nowadays, uh, who stood up to the communists. And many of them did this under a, a, a significant amount of pressure. It was not uncommon for uh, the Social Democrats to have rallies in the Soviet sector of Berlin, knowing that they were being watched, knowing that they could have disappeared off the streets. but. And the American occupation officials were surprised to see the risks that the Germans were taking to stand up to the Soviet pressure. And in that election, that the, 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 the communists got crushed in that city election. Yeah, huge PR blow to them. It was. And, and right after that, the tone of the Soviets got much harsher. Uh, I, I would argue that that's really when the Cold War began because that they were hoping that they would do well in that election. Many of them thought they would do well in that election for a variety of reasons, and they were crushed. And I just, as I read the stories of the, of the West Berliners that were involved in the electioneering and then going out to vote, I asked myself, what would I do if I was in a situation where I knew I was being watched and I was being discouraged from going to vote, I think a lot of us would find all sorts of reasons not to go to the polls or find something else to do. But they turned out in incredible numbers, like over 86% of all West Berliners went out and voted in, in, that, in, in that election. And they had to know they were being watched. And there sure. were whispers out there that the Soviets had ways of figuring out who voted for who. And if the Americans eventually le left, there was gonna be payback. They couldn't kill everybody though. No. But you know, but individual people disappeared in Berlin all right. the time, and and so that's one of the reasons things that I reason I wanted to write the book is that many times when we think of Americans' involvement in Berlin during the Cold War, we think of America doing things for Berliners, uh, but this is a case where that was a huge PR win for the Americans because because people went out there and, and put themselves at some significant risk, went out and voted and gave the Americans a huge PR victory. For over 20 years, the Army and State Department safeguarded the village and kept it free. With the bureaucratic blob and, and the State Department, uh, you know, and Pentagon, how they become difficult to deal with, would something like what happened in Steinstück and then, can that happen today, do you think? How yeah. difficult would it be? Uh, well, you, with every situation, you have to assess the level of risk that you're facing. And the biggest risk that the Americans were facing here was a, a PR risk. And, and really, the larger risk, though, was that Germans viewed – Germans were watching the Americans closely – in 1951 to see whether we were going to stay committed to protecting Western Europe. I mean, it had been two years since the Berlin airlift had ended. It, it, since then, uh, communist China or China had fallen to the communists. The Korean War had broken out, so we now had a major conflict on the other side of the world. And West Berliners and West Germans were wondering whether the United States would find itself distracted somewhere else. And... Uh, and maybe not live up to all of its promises it was making. Um, I do think this could happen today because, uh, to be honest, the level of risk, physical risk that the United States was taking with Steinstücken 
was to be was to be honest minimal the most we had was three or four military police in the village at any one time there was never any indication that their that their lives were in danger that the germans were going to these germans were going to shoot them or try to capture them um uh so as opposed to let's say in afghanistan where we had oh. thousands of troops on the ground every day who were physically at risk okay so and uh, the evacuation was a disaster and America did not keep its word. Well, I, I think we need to be fair to the current administration because it's, I think it's hard to compare the two situations, so I'm not going to try to do that. So I'm going to get back to, to, to Bruce's question here, focusing specifically on Steinstucken. Um when I said that the United States did the right thing instead of the easy thing, with Steinstucken, the easy thing would have to do would have been when the East Germans surrounded the village, would have been for the American commandant in Berlin to go out and say, yes, this is an uncomfortable situation, but let's be real here, folks. Uh, this is not a... The village itself had no strategic significance. There was no, didn't like have a, a water supply that West Berlin needed or power station or something. It was a bedroom community. The people could easily have been moved into the city. And it's also, I think it's useful to bear in mind that West that Western Europe was still in the midst of turmoil as a result of the end of World War II. Millions of ethnic Germans had been expelled from Eastern Europe as a res, uh, following the Potsdam Agreement. So, West Germany was already resettling millions of people. So we're so moving 200 other people here wouldn't necessarily have been that big of a deal. Uh, but the Americans and, and and there were some practical reasons for the Americans supporting Steinstucken. They did not they they were concerned about a PR hit and they were they're also in a situation where they needed support from the West Germans going on in the future because we needed West Germany to support NATO. And we needed West Germany to align itself with the United States and the Western powers as opposed to becoming neutral. Uh, so we wanted them to commit themselves to the Western alliance. So, at, so that means we needed to build their trust. Now, what the American commander in Berlin could have done to push come to shove is he could have moved the, the residents of Steinstucken into Berlin relatively easily. Uh, and he also could have come out and just basically said, had a press conference saying, let's be honest here, folks. This is a place where I could not even send American troops to because they'd have to cross over Soviet territory. Does anyone really want to risk World War III over this? So they could easily have justified not supporting the village. But instead, America kind of stuck its neck out and said, we made a commitment to support West Berlin. And going by the agreements that we made, Steinstucken is obviously part of West Berlin. We made a commitment. We're going to stick by it. And so what the American commandant did is he basically told the Soviets, I'm not backing down. I want you to leave. And the Soviets blinked. So let's talk, let's, let's talk about somebody who is probably unknown mm -hmm. uh, to anybody under 40 years old today. And mm -hmm. that's General Lucius Clay. Yes. Um, talk about what he did when he returned, because he, he was there during the Berlin airlift and so on. Mm -hmm. But talk about what happened in 1961, I think, when he made a dramatic helicopter flight to Steinstucken to emphasize America's commitment to keeping the village and Berlin free. Yeah. Uh, first, anyone who's a fan of country music is probably, when you hear the name Lucius Clay, you're probably thinking of the evil character in the Charlie Daniels song, The Legend of Wooly Swamp. There's a character in there named Lucius <laughs> okay, Clay. So, okay, so so that's where no, people would right. know the name. Unfortunately, because... 
Lucius Clay was a bona fide American hero. Yes, he was. He was the military governor of Germany during the Berlin airlift, and he was one of the, the prime officials that convinced the Pentagon and the White House to support the Berlin airlift when there were a lot of American officials who were thinking when the Berlin, when the Berlin blockade started in 1948 that we should just take the opportunity and pull out. Clay convinced President Truman to commit America to that. And for that, he was he is was revered, especially in Berlin. They called him the der Vater der Luftbrücke, the father of the airlift. And so uh, by 1961, when the Berlin Wall crisis started, Clay had long since retired. He was in, in public, but he was in private life at that point. But President Kennedy knew that he needed to do something to lift the spirits of the West Berliners because he was concerned that young people in West Berlin and that businesses in West Berlin would look at the brand new Berlin Wall, decide there was no future in West Berlin, and move to West Germany. I remember when that wall went up mm -hmm. in, in, in the summer of that year, and it was frightening. Mm -hmm. And I'm in Tucson, Arizona, not in, uh, not in Berlin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and well, a lot of people were concerned about that, and, and they, had, they had good reason to be concerned. And so Kennedy knew that the, that the if he didn't know it right away, he learned relatively quickly that the uh, that the West Berliners were watching the Americans intently for for signs that we would lose our desire to stay. Now that the now that the uh, the wall had gone up, and so Kennedy hit on the on the idea of getting General Clay out of retirement and sending him back to Berlin as his personal representative. Well, so Clay went back to Berlin in September of 1961 to a tumultuous welcome. If you read the newspaper uh, accounts of it, it sounds it almost sounds like a like a Beatles concert where uh, everybody was freaking out and uh, Clay was in a motorcade going down through the city and people were busting through the police escorts to th toss bouquets into his his car, and so real ju jubilation at. Uh, at uh, Clay being there. Clay, though, was a practical man, and he knew that once he showed up, the Berliners would expect him to do something. They would expect him to, to show some initiative. So Clay looked around for a way to demonstrate America's resolve to, to stick, sticking by uh, West Berlin. But he had to do it in such a way that, that would not risk a shooting war with the East Germans and with the Soviets. So then Clay was told about the exclave of Steinstucken. And he realized this was a good opportunity for him to go out there. And so what he did was he got on an American Army helicopter, didn't tell anybody about it, got an American Army helicopter, flew out there. The res residents of Steinstucken were first stunned because I think many of them had never seen a helicopter. As far as I know, that's the first time a helicopter ever landed in the village. And then once they saw Clay, they recognized him and they were overjoyed. And Clay told them all that, he was there to reassure them that America was to stand by its commitments to support all of West Berlin and to include the, this most vulnerable spot of West Berlin, which was completely disconnected from the west of the city. So that was a, that was an, a strong PR boost for the western side. It was also pushing back on the Soviets a bit. Donald, we have a caller, Ben Bueller-Garcia, who just got finished with his show. Ben, we only got about two minutes. What say you? I'll, I'll be brief, gentlemen. Just speaking about heroes in history, uh, Gail Howerson, who yep. became famous during the Berlin Airlift, was a candy bloomer. He just passed away. Oh, so, I didn't know uh, that. God, Godspeed, Gail, and uh, another important piece of history that if we don't repeat it and don't tell it, folks will forget it. Colonel Halverson's in this book. 
I was oh, able good, to interview. Good. I was able to interview him for the book. He was the commander of Temple Hoff Air Force Base uh, in 1972 when something called the Four Power Agreement went into effect, and uh, that is when the road, as part of that agreement, the East German government sold a strip of land to West Berlin just wide enough to build a road on. So they built. So so that connected Steinstück into West Berlin. They built a road on it, and then. The East Germans promptly built the Berlin Wall on both sides of the road. So, and I mentioned this in the book, uh, one of the moments that seared in my mind is that time in 1988 when I went to Berlin and I went to Steinstucken. We were on a bus and we turned down this small country road. And you looked at the road, it was obviously a small road, the kind of road that would connect two little villages. And it went off in the distance and on both sides of that road were the pillars and the the walls and the watchtowers of the Berlin Wall. It was it was one of the freakiest things that I have ever seen. And at the other end of that road was Steinstück. Donald, and thanks very much for your call, Ben. I appreciate it. Donald, that's all the time we have for today's show. And thanks very much for joining us. We didn't get to nearly everything. Uh, what's the best way for our, our listeners to order a copy of Steinstück and A Little Pocket of Freedom? Okay. The book is on Amazon, but it is also available at the publisher's website. That's that is acclaimpress.com. A C C L A I M press.com. We prefer that you order it from the publisher because then, you know, frankly, it's we a make better more financial money for that. Yes, but right. it's also on Amazon. Eb and I, hey, thanks very much, Donald. Eb and I hope you enjoyed our visit today with Donald Smith. His great new book, Steinstück and a Little Pocket of Freedom. Did you know that today's show will be podcasted on both a KVOI, KVOI website and an Apple podcast? Check us out over 100 Inside Track episodes there. Until next week when we host retired U.S. Navy captain and member of the National Security uh, uh, Council, Robert Wells. He'll join us to talk about the Ukraine situation for Inside Track. Ed Wilkinson. This is Bruce Ash welcoming, thanking you for listening in today and wishing you a very good afternoon. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. This is Eb Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. As the new year begins, many things change, but one thing remains the same. People worry about inflation, but it's just a process. Manage your wealth and you manage that process. We use the baby steps. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911-WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com.